Part three, section two, chapter twenty two A of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter twenty two A Volant Adaptation. Next to water as a molding environment comes the air, for the creature which inhabits either is surrounded on all sides by a homogeneous medium so that it becomes uniformly and beautifully modified to offer the least possible resistance to the attainment of speed. Water inhabiting forms, however, whether primarily or secondarily adapted, may become so thoroughly at home that in the latter group no evidence of their former habitat may be outwardly visible aerial creatures on the contrary are never exclusively such and must return to the trees or earth or sea when they wish to rest hence their adaptation is always a double one and as a consequence cannot reach the extreme of specialization of waterborne types classification of flight passive or gliding flight flight is of two sorts first passive or gliding flight wherein with the exception of the fishes the creature merely takes an initial leap from a high point and held up by certain sustaining organs and impelled by gravity glides to a lower level sometimes covering a horizontal distance of many yards aside from the initial impetus there is no locomotive force other than gravity so that the flight is comparable to a gliding aeroplane bereft of its engine power true flight True flight, on the contrary, implies power, so that there is sustained movement through the air, whether the flight be brief like that of a domestic hen or supported on the tireless pinions of an albatross. True flight has evolved three times among vertebrates, in the reptilian pterodactyls, the birds, and the bats. Whether flying fishes should be included is a much disputed question. True flyers may move the wings with varying degrees of rapidity from the extreme speed of a hummingbird's wing to the measured cadence of a winging crow. Many birds, and doubtless some of the ancient pterosaurs, also sail or soar on apparently motionless wings for hours at a time after having gained their altitude by a flapping rise. They are in reality gradually descending in a great spiral, although by taking advantage of the shifting currents of air they may retain their elevation with little apparent expenditure of energy. An extreme adaptation of this last method is that seen in the albatross, whose majestic flight is thus described by Hutton. With outstretched, motionless wings he sails over the surface of the sea, now rising high in the air, now with a bold sweep and wings inclined at an angle with the horizon, descending until the tip of the lower one all but touches the crests of the waves as he skims over them. Suddenly he sees something floating on the water and prepares to alight, but how changed he now is from the noble bird but a moment before all grace and symmetry. He raises his wings, his head goes back, and his back goes in. Down drop two enormous webbed feet, straddled out to their full extent, and with a hoarse croak, between the cry of a raven and that of a sheep, he falls souse into the water. Here he is at home again, breasting the waves like a cork. Presently he stretches out his neck, and with great exertion of his wings runs along the top of the water for seventy or eighty yards, until at last, having got sufficient impetus, he tucks up his legs and is once more fairly launched in the air. The flight of the albatross seems to be sustained on motionless wings, and yet it will follow the wake of a ship with all of the apparent ease with which a school of porpoises precedes her bow. In the latter, when viewed from above, there is no visible propelling force except at long intervals when a few rather vigorous 
dorsoventral undulations of the tail are seen which however do not seem to accelerate the creature's speed appreciably a closer view especially if one be more nearly on a level with the water shows the tail to be in rapid but minute vibration all the time and this intense movement is sufficient to keep the creature ahead of a thirty-nine knot torpedo boat the record and even this does not seem to be the limit of its speed the progress of the albatross is apparently analogous for as mosley says i believe that albatrosses move their wings much oftener than is suspected they often have the appearance of soaring for long periods after a ship without flapping their wings at all but if they be very closely watched very short but extremely quick motions of the wings may be detected the appearance is rather as if the body of the bird dropped a short distance and rose again the movements cannot be seen at all unless the bird is exactly on a level with the eye a very quick stroke carried even through a very short arc can of course supply a large store of fresh momentum doubtless the albatross takes advantage of every shift in the breeze which is made up of a complex of varying air currents tilting this or that wing to gain whatever lifting power the air can give that this jockeying of the air currents is a very great aid is attested by the fact that on a calm day the albatross cannot sail but must flap heavily to sustain itself in flight modifications bodily contour in volant animals has been emphasized and is second only to that of the purely aquatic forms in its degree of perfection for the lessening of resistance sustaining surface the sustaining surface is primitively except in the fishes a parachute-like fold or series of folds of the skin known as the patagium this may be supported in various ways but with one exception the little lizards draco which inhabit the indo-malayan region the limbs form the chief supporting agents in the flying dragons draco just mentioned the body is depressed and the sides extend outward into a pair of large wing-like membranes supported by five or six elongated ribs the entire device can be folded like a fan against the sides of the body when not in use the soaring powers are not very great but when resting among the luxuriant foliage of their habitat the animals are said to resemble butterflies in their habit of opening and closing the wings most soaring mammals have the patagia supported between the fore and hind limbs and sometimes the skin fold extends in front of the forelimb to the neck and again between the hind limbs and the tail perhaps the extreme of development may be seen in galeopithecus the so-called flying lemur for here the patagium extends from the sides of the neck to the tip of the tail even including the digits which are webbed as though for aquatic life see page 365 where the patagium is supported mainly by the elongated forelimbs and their digits true flight ensues as in the pterosaurs wherein the enormously elongated outer finger sustains over half the membrane and in the bats whose second third fourth and fifth digits perform a like function the thumb alone being free in both groups the membrane extends from the arm to the sides of the body and also to the front of the hind limb an interfemoral membrane which however may have existed has not been demonstrated in the pterosaurs and is variably present in bats feathers are structures which are absolutely diagnostic of birds since no other group of animals has developed them and indeed their complexity is such that there is little likelihood of nature's repeating herself in their evolution as she has done many times in that of simpler structures 
birds have traces of patagia in front of and behind the arm which may have had a very adequate supporting function before the feathers usurped their place but in all known birds the main buoyancy is provided by the broad veins of the remiges supporting feathers of the wing and the retrices steering feathers of the tail which collectively form the most perfect device imaginable except perhaps the insect's wing the feather has been called nature's masterpiece and while simply a modified reptilian scale has reached a complexity so great that its component parts may be counted by the hundreds of thousands it is thus described by evans the feather consists of a quill or calamus and the rachis or shaft on the rachis a double series of barbs are developed carrying a similar double series of barbules the barbules again giving rise to barbicels which in the distal rows usually terminate in hooklets these catch in the folded margins of the next proximal row thus producing a firm surface each flight feather therefore forms a membrane-like supporting device the several feathers of the wings being collectively sufficient to maintain the bird in the air even when a few at a time are lost during the molting season wing the wing as we have seen has been three times evolved twice with patagia and once with feathers a comparison of the three types is of interest beginning with the bat wing which is the latest in time and hence naturally the least modified here the humerus is well developed the radius long and curved and the ulna from loss of general utility vestigial as in cursorial types the pollux or thumb is always free and clawed for crawling and climbing its smaller bats microcheratoptera the second finger although distinct is not free from the third but is attached thereunto distally the two combining to support the anterior margin of the wing the fourth and fifth digits are well developed in the megacheratoptera or fruit bats the second digit is independent of the third and bears a claw like the first in the pterodactyl wing the radius and ulna are more nearly equal the former being somewhat smaller the next segment consists of a very heavy fourth metacarpal bearing the great wing finger and three extremely slender metacarpals supporting the first second and third digits which are small but free and clawed there is also the bone known as the pteroid which lies in the front of the forearm and is directed inward toward the shoulder it is supposed to have supported the anterior margin of a small prepatagium which lay in front of the arm from the wrist to the neck the single wing finger presumably the fourth is huge and formed the anterior support of the patagium beyond the wrist one curious feature of the pterodactyl wing lies in the position of the principal joint the wing being flexed between metacarpal and proximal phalanx rather than at the wrist as in birds and bats the bird wing is the most specialized of all for here not only are the digits reduced to three but these are more or less fused together so that with rare exceptions their sole function is that of flight in all modern birds therefore there are three unequally developed metacarpals which are firmly coossified the digits are represented by one or rarely two thumb phalanges which support the so-called bastard wing while the second digit which is much the largest bears two and the third one phalanx claws are sometimes borne on the first and second digits of modern birds while archaeopteryx the reptilian bird of the jurassic had a claw on each of the three free fingers the ailer or wing expanse is provided by the feathers since the pantagium as we have seen is vestigial these feathers known as remiges are borne upon the hand primaries and on the arm secondaries 
overlying their basal portion are several rows of coverts protective feathers known as major median minor and marginal the importance of the wing coverts lies in the fact that they close the interstices between the quills of the flight feathers and give the wing a continuous area to oppose the buoyancy of the air birds have an advantage over both bat and pterodactyl in that lost or injured feathers are renewed whereas injury to the pantagium impairs its owner's powers of flight for life pneumatic bones hollow air-filled bones are found in the birds and pterodactyls and in many ways they show a remarkable community of design for instance there is in the humus of both pterodactyl and bird a foramen for communication between the respiratory organs and the cavity of the bone but that is not so remarkable as the fact that in each instance the foramina correspond in position form and size and that they are not one large whole but in each case a reticulation of small perforations one beyond the other so far as our knowledge goes pneumaticity seems to have been universal among pterosaurs but there are no degenerate or flightless pterosaurs known on the other hand birds do not all possess it in equal degree for as one would expect it is absent from the ratitae nor is it developed equally in all birds with flight coupled with the pneumaticity in birds is a remarkable development of air sacs principally in the abdomen but in other portions of the body as well these serve not only to lighten the specific gravity of the bird but also to aid in respiration for the lungs of birds are inelastic and do not hang freely in the body cavity as they do in mammals but by means of the abdominal sacs air is drawn through them not merely into them hence as there is no unused portion of the lung containing residual air as in mammals respiration is much more effectively accomplished this is necessary for with the rapid flight there is a high expenditure of energy and the respiratory and nutritive organs and those of circulation must needs be ample and efficient to meet the demand upon them sternum and shoulder girdle not only is the sternum or breastbone well developed in creatures with true flight but it bears a median keel or carina for the origin of the pectoral muscles which wield the wings to resist the contractile force of these muscles the shoulder girdle is made very rigid by the development of the clavicles and in the birds of the heavy pillar-like coracoids as well coracoids are lacking in the bats and clavicles in the pterosaurs but in birds both elements are present in the pre-cretaceous pterosaurs the scapula is saber-shaped and united to the coracoids at an angle of less than ninety degrees exactly as in carinate birds the cretaceous pterodactyls differ however in that the scapulae while articulating at right angles with the coracoids are directed toward the vertebrae uniting with their neural arches in the great pterosaur pterodon the scapula articulates with the coalesced spines of several coossified vertebrae which constitute the so-called notarium the whole mechanism being comparable to the pelvic arch although on a much larger scale in the flying carinate birds the scapula and coracoid are united by an articulation in the flightless ratitae on the other hand they are firmly coossified and form an angle with one another greater than a right angle in the ratitae as the name implies the sternum is raft like being bereft of a keel brain and sense organs true flight implies a good brain and the perfection of certain sense organs which as we have seen are developed in direct ratio with the locomotive powers of any animal the brains of bird and pterosaur are curiously alike in that each has broad well-developed hemispheres cerebrum which touch the cerebellum behind and the optic lobes are much enlarged 
both birds and pterodactyls were well endowed with visual organs the eyes in each case being large and having the so-called sclerotic plates structures which are rarely elsewhere present except in certain aquatic reptiles ichthyosaurs mosasaurs etc their function may be to resist variable pressure and also to aid in the rapid focusing which is a vital necessity in bird and pterodactyl the bats on the other hand are notoriously blind but make up for it by a most marvelously developed tactile sense which does not seem to need actual contact for the discernment of approaching objects the remarkable ears and facial appendages of certain bats are the principal seat of this sense and the patagia and interfemoral membrane are also highly sensitive End of chapter 22a